Bandwidth for Change Log is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. I'm Sam Boyer, and it is go time. It's Go Time, a weekly podcast where we discuss interesting topics around the Go programming language, the community, and everything in between. If you currently write Go or aspire to, this is the show for you. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Go Time. Today's episode is number 36, and today's show is sponsored by TopTal and Compose. So on the show today, we have myself, Eric St. Martin. Brian Kettleson is also here. Hello. And Carlicia Pinto. Hi, everybody. And our special guest today, bringing some uh, well-needed love and knowledge to the dependency world in Go, is Sam Boyer. How are you, Sam? Hello, hello. I'm great. How are you? Good, good. So do you want to give everybody kind of like a little bit of a background of kind of who you are, what you're working on, and we'll kind of kick things off there? Sure. Um, so uh, I'm a Go programmer, believe it or not. Uh, and uh, <laughs> it's crazy, I know. Um, but What is this uh, Go thing? <laughs> it's, it's weird. I, I, I hear there's rodents involved. I don't, I don't, I don't know much more than that. Um, I've been sort of, uh, I, I've been interested in Things related to, to package management for a long time. One of my earlier things in my my open source world uh, was I was the lead engineer who built the Git hosting platform that's still used by the the Drupal project. Uh, so I have this. It's it's not technically package management, but it's quite adjacent. It's source sharing and and all that. So I have this sort of long history with uh, dealing with uh, communities and and them having code and and wanting to share it. But yeah, so uh, a few years ago, uh, I think actually it was it was around the first GoForCon 2014. I so I know um, uh, Matt Butcher and Matt Farina from they all three of us were coworkers back uh, in like 2010 or so, and they of course are the authors of Glide now. Uh, and so the first GoForCon, we were sort of talking, hey, we could work on this this package management space uh, that that really sort of desperately needs it. Although in 2014. I think it's fair to say that at that point, there was um, not as much clear public understanding or dialogue around it being such a problem. So they started uh, the work on Glide. Uh, I didn't really sort of come in until later, but uh, there have been, you know, I mean, all these different projects all over the place from a bunch of different people that uh, tackle at least part of the, the general problem. And then for me, it was end of December 2015 uh, that I started getting... I you know I can't remember what the 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 precipitating event was, but I remember being really annoyed. That much is clear in my mind. I was really annoyed with some tool that I was using. It it, it may have been Glide, it may have been some, maybe it was GoDep. Doesn't matter. But I decided, okay, I'm going to <laughs> I'm going to try to describe how we should solve this problem. So I spent like six weeks writing this essay, which turned into this thirteen thousand word monstrosity that's that's on Medium uh, that I published February of last year. And I'm proud to say that I stole like five years of productivity from the world because that's how many hours it takes for people, the number of people who actually read the whole thing to read the whole thing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's my, it's my, my favorite way to think about it. But um, so, I mean, from there, I moved in and this is the thing too, right? Like this is not, this is a complex social problem as much as it is a complex technical problem. And I think it's fair to say that there was a lot of, 
acrimony over this problem a year ago. Uh, so the approach that I decided to take was I was going to write this essay and then try to crank out this library that is now GPS and is the, the thing that's powering the dev tool and try to use that as a way of, instead of just like adding another tool, to use that as a platform for uh, bringing together the, the different tool maintainers and sort of creating a common shared conversation um, that that let us move in more of a consensus direction instead of the sort of fractious thing that had been going on for so long. I, I, sort, I feel like I hit kind of MVP with GPS around GopherCon last year, and then the let me try to wrap this up. The, the shortest summary from there is that Peter Borgon decided to uh, convene this this package management committee, which started meeting last September. Uh, so that was me and uh, Ed Muller and Jess Rizal and Andrew Grant, uh, and we were all so we were all you know on the phone a couple times a week trying to sort of hammer this thing out. And around October last year, we started actually implementing the Dep tool uh, on top of GPS, and then we released in early January. And now we're on the mad dash towards making this thing real and and official, that is integrating it into the Go tool chain for real. So let's talk about that a little bit too. Um, yeah. So GPS specifically, mm-hmm. you had built a library around doing the package solving mm-hmm. to be used potentially by multiple tools. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that and kind of what role that plays in it and kind of the motivation behind having a library instead of kind of like one standard canonical tool that everybody uses. Right. So at least half of the motivation there really was social and not technical, at least at the outset. Uh, again, it was this, I didn't want to just ship yet another tool. Um, I have the XKCD in mind uh, situation. There are 14 competing standards. I know what I'll do. I'll write another standard situation. There are 15 competing standards. It, it felt like I was just going to reproduce that problem. So instead, I wanted to, to sort of push this down into a library with the idea that uh, like, if I could solve the problem in a general way where different tools could use it, then we would end up bringing the tools closer together. It would be a way to heal some of the divides kind of in the tooling. After having done it, though, I'm really glad in retrospect, because it turned into a really interesting problem. Like, How do you actually pull out the pieces of dependency management and create interfaces around them and say, uh, and, and what are the pieces of, of dependency management? So in many ways, it, it sort of flowed directly from writing this giant long article where I tried to describe the design of a good system that does this into actually doing it in, in an abstracted way. One thing that I noticed when I was going over the GPS library, which stands for Go Packaging Solver, yes, is that the language, just like you, you just explained, it was meant to be a foundation for the tools to build on top, mm-hmm. right? That was seems that that was the motivation. Now going forward with uh, GoDap, is that still a goal? Because doesn't the committee want to move away from having multiple tools? Yes, yes, um, right. So yeah, that, that's a, that's a key part of the question that I should address. Um, yeah, we are very much hoping to have Dep become official. Uh, to be very clear. It's not like the Dep tool has been blessed by the Go team or anything at this point. Like this is still experimental. This is by no means guaranteed to happen. But you know we're we're on a good path here and we're uh, doing everything we can to make sure it happens. And yes, the goal is that we would obviate the need for pretty much any of the other tools that are out there today, and ideally also provide uh, migration paths from them so that people can just you know run a command and uh, uh, great their their projects converted over to the Dep based equivalent. 
And now the committee that um, you were a part of in developing this pretty much had representation from the majority of the tools that existed out there. So it should, in theory, solve all of the use cases that each of the individual authors had for their own tools. I think so. We had the we had the core committee that I uh, listed the members of already, and then we also had the, the like advisory committee, which, uh, and I'm going to feel terrible if I forget somebody, but I believe that was Daniel Theophanes. Sorry if I mispronounced anybody's name. Uh, Dave Cheney, uh, Matt Farina, Steve Francia. I believe those were the four folks there. So yeah, I mean th- there were a couple tools that we'd missed, perhaps, but. Yeah, I mean, we've tried very hard to make sure that we're covering all the use cases. There are a couple things, like right now, um, we don't have the ability to support uh, like local mirroring in a way that Glide does, uh, but there's, you know, these things are on the roadmap. So there won't be anything preventing Go users from continuing to do their own dependency management? There won't. Um, I, we can't really... Can't and shouldn't try to coerce people out of that. My experience is that doesn't <laughs> tend to work too well. I think it's fair to say that most of the way we're approaching this is twofold. One, it's it's let's build all this sort of community consensus and momentum behind one tool so that we can sort of avoid the pointless fights. And then two, make it good enough that people don't feel the need to use the tools that they've been using thus far. Perfect. I don't ask because I want to use a different tool. I sure. just ask because several people out there are probably already upset. They're shoving this depth tool down my throat. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. That's 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 not a situation I want to create. To me, that's just pointless acrimony and a and a an argument we don't need to have if we make something which is good. Awesome. The interesting problem with the multiple tools, though, mm-hmm. um, rather than kind of having like kind of like a ubiquitous way of of kind of doing this stuff, is that when you have dependencies that have dependencies and all of them use some different vendoring tool right it gets really complicated to be able to kind of flatten the dependency tree and be able to create kind of repeatable builds like that so the um uh i this is actually this is one of the the earliest design choices that i made in gps so gps has a concept of both a manifest and and a lock is the sort of two file system i don't want to i i could go into describing what's all entailed there but the brief version of it is Manifests essentially describe constraints, and, and manifests only describe constraints on your direct dependencies, whereas locks are a transitively complete picture of the entire dependency graph, and there aren't constraints in there, there are specific revisions, ideally immutable revisions. But so GPS is built around the idea that the implementing tool passes in an implementation of called like an analyzer, and it really only has one method, which is get manifest and lock. So uh, each different tool that implements it could write an analyzer that just you know learns how to read its own manifest and mock file. But it's also totally possible to implement the analyzer in a way that reads other tools' metadata to the extent that it's convertible. Glide already does this, like it has sort of on-the-fly conversion support for four different tools. But what this means is that we could have a system, and, and I'll get to whether this is a good idea or not in a second, uh, but we could have a system where we teach DEP essentially to, to read and translate the metadata files from existing tools and do that all on the fly transparently inside of the solving process uh, and use that in order to inform solving decisions. There's even a way, for example, to, um, so, uh, you know, GoDEP, which only records basically commit IDs, SHA-1s, uh, there's even a way to use that sort of as advisory information, but not an actual constraint. Uh, say, 
let's prefer to use this version of this crazy, you know, five deep transitive dependency. But if we can't work it all out using that version, then it's all right. We'll sort of move over to something else. The question, though, uh, like I said, is whether this is a good idea or not. It was clearly a good idea for that when, uh, and there's there's like an outstanding branch to, to convert Glide to using GPS. And it's clearly a good idea in the Glide case because Glide, you know, was never going to become the ubiquitous tool. It was going to exist in an ecosystem where there were other tools. So it made sense, you know, in a, in a forward and backward looking way to be able to convert on the fly from whatever dependency management tool other people might be using. However, with DEP, we're in a different situation. If we put that support in, then we've created a situation where we're actually kind of encouraging people to continue using the existing tools, which isn't necessarily what we want to do. The drawback is if we don't put it in, then we don't really have any of that metadata available for any of the historical versions of code that have already been published. Uh, which, if we put it in, we could just, you know, dynamically and magically be able to interact with, uh, smartly interact with the whole existing Go ecosystem. So one of the, I'm sorry, go ahead, Eric. I was just going to kind of point out that that kind of requires that all the tools at least recognize, like Semver or something like that, because if they're just generically kind of tracking dependencies and not the specific versions of those dependencies, it gets hard to solve it above right unless we get into kind of what you were saying where it's just a recommendation yeah um so there's a whole sort of universe of different kinds of versions out there right like you can have semver and you can have branches and you can have revisions and you can have tags and some of this is intersecting some of its siblings some of it's not so everything that you could do in a current tool um, when it comes to recording simply a revision or a branch or, or, or whatever is something a GPS can support and, and, and translate to. Uh, unless someone like, I'm not aware of anybody, uh, any tool that's done this, uh, but unless they literally created like some new form of, of versioning that exists above the level of the version control system itself, then then GPS can deal with it and, it and it can translate an equivalent. So it's possible for us to get all that information in. However, solving is pretty much a useless process unless there is some sort of range specified. Because if there's something that says this is the one and only version that this can work with, there's no real solving to do there. It's this works or we fail. So uh, yes, like if the tool that we're converting from does not work with Semver or does not have any sort of concept of ranges, and I believe two existing tools have, have concepts of ranges, uh, then there, there really sort of isn't much that we can do. It might end up being sort of an overly stiff solution. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of trade-offs involved in, in a decision like that. However, um, the, the plus side of this is, like, I, I sort of wrote it in the way, understanding that there were a lot of different trade-offs here, and it's hard to know from the outset uh, whether which one of them is the right way to go. I optimized for making it easy to change the way that we do that. Like, we can write the implementation to suck in code from different types of tools, and we can literally experiment with it. Like, it's two lines of code or something to, to say, yes, let's, let's pull in metadata from other tools, or no, let's stop doing it. Uh, so that at the very least, it's easy for us to empirically determine if this is a good idea or not. And now, Brian, you were getting ready to ask something? I was going to ask roughly the same question, but with a little bit more of a spin to, um, is there a preferred way, if, if we could steer the go community in one direction you know would we would we ask everybody to start tagging and uh, using semver or, or what's what's the thing that would make the most sense to the community as a whole how can we encourage that behavior to make all of this easier uh yeah start tagging and using semver 
um, that that would be great. Dave uh, Janney put a post out about that, I don't know, a year ago or so. And of course, you know, there's been an argument for that for a while. But yes, start tagging your stuff with Sember now. It'll be helpful even if you're not actually using depth metadata yet. Uh, simply being able to target those versions will be an improvement. So I've seen a lot of uh, tools on GitHub like uh, Ruby-based tools or even uh, Node or JavaScript-based tools mm -hmm. that do automatic uh, tagging and GitHub releases and such. Do you think that we could encourage adoption if that were built into a go type command? Yes. Like go tag and go release and yeah. go increment version? Right. Uh, there's someone already wrote, we, we put a call out uh, asking for, for something like this um, as part of the blog post that we wrote for the um, advent series last December. Uh, and someone wrote something which I am embarrassed to say that I have not actually had time to, to look at a lot yet. But yes, having this as, as a part of the tool is probably something that would be very helpful. The reason that we maybe haven't done a ton with it yet is just because uh, it ends up being like to, to say, um, go release, for example, what are you releasing to mm -hmm. right now? A release is, you know, you tag your thing and you push it, <laughs> um, for whatever that means in the, in the version control system that you're using. Uh, in the future, if we end up going the direction of having some sort of central registry, something analogous to NPM or crates or, uh, all the different ones that are out there, then the release command would you know, be publishing code into that system. But that's its sort of whole own subdomain. And we do have an open issue for it in the depth queue with some interesting discussion there. But it's not clear when we'll go that direction or if we will. So I think something that the real value now actually is the static analysis that can tell you which Sember version you should bump. Uh, that's the thing that helps because it makes sure that we're sort of using Sember correctly. You know, this is completely off topic and on topic at the same time. So forgive sure. me for, for my random ADD thing. But one of the interesting notes that we had today for uh, news items, new projects that came out was the um, uh, up, up, what's it called? Up, up, uh, upspin. Yeah, upspin. Yeah. Yeah. And Andrew and Rob's uh, yep. distributed storage thingy, what's it? And it just re occurred to me that using that uh, content addressable distributed file store like that would be a really interesting way to tag and have a very large scale distributed repository of stuff. You know, one of the things that everybody hates about GitHub, even though we love GitHub, is that when GitHub is down, everybody's down. And the same thing happens for Rust crates and Ruby gems when their servers go down, everybody goes down. But if we had a distributed file store like that, for our system, A, we would be badass because you know nobody else has it, mm -hmm. and B, we could write it in Go. So I don't know, it was just kind of a random thought I had. I've got a little bit of a fever, so forgive me if it's crazier, <laughs> but. <laughs> no, no, totally. Um, uh, I think, um, yes, and actually I would say one of the immediate comments that I got you know, a year ago after, after I published the article was people from IPFS saying, hey, we could host this on IPFS, and it'd be great. And on the other side, I can't remember who it was, but someone also said, yeah, I, I don't want my builds to fail because there aren't currently enough seeders in the network. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> trade-offs. But um, yes, like I, I do think this is an interesting thing. In fact, actually, I joked back channel to Andrew that, hey, maybe we could use Upspin to do this exact thing that you're saying. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting to explore. Maybe we can do it. Interesting. <laughs> I mean, frankly, I'm pretty like, you know, 
roses and, and unicorns and rainbows about the possibility of this whole problem space anyway. But yeah, there's I think there's a ton of different things we can do. And looking at using some sort of distributed storage for tracking people's releases is definitely on that list of cool stuff. All right. So I think it's time for our first sponsor break. So our first sponsor for today is TopTal. Hey everyone, Adam Stakoviak here, Editor-in-Chief of Changelog. Our friends at TopTal have been sponsoring our podcast for years, and now they're sponsoring GoTime as well. We think they're one of the best ways to hire developers and designers, as well as one of the best ways to freelance as a software developer or designer. Head to toptal.com go to learn more. Tell them you heard about them on GoTime. If you'd like a more personal introduction, email me. Adam at changelaw.com. And now back to the show. All right. And we are back talking to Sam Boyer about the GPS tool and some of the new dependency management stuff that committee has been working on. Um, so we've talked a bit about kind of like how GPS works and kind of the motivation for that. What I'm interested to talk about a little bit is the depth tool itself. Mm-hmm. Um, is this created more as like a reference implementation for using GPS? Or does it offer any functionality and features that maybe don't exist in some of the tooling that people are familiar with already? So um, I think the thing that, so this, the single thing that GPS does and therefore DEP does that other tools don't really do is it's a real solver, uh, which means that it's possible for, to, for us to have this, this useful pattern where each different project uh, in the dependency graph gets to say, these are the constraints on the versions of my dependencies that I can use. And we can have two different projects depending on uh, the, the same project, which is generally referred to as a diamond dependency, and uh, work out which common version can be used given the constraints of the two parents, or say that there's no way to actually work this out. Uh, and you know, this is this is a constraint-solving problem. It is NP-complete. Uh, it's, it's nasty. But Having that basic capability is the essential reason that that's so important is it lets each different author who's working on their own project make choices about like, these are the versions that I know that I work with. And I, as the person importing something else, don't have to go and dig into all of your dependencies and then their dependencies and then their dependencies and end up getting taken very far away from my code, my you know domain of knowledge. Uh, and making some decision about which version to use. It essentially distributes the problem to everyone working in the ecosystem uh, of which versions of of your dependencies should you use. Now, it doesn't force us to respect what everyone else says about their versions of uh, dependencies to use. There's override behavior and everything, but it gives us this sort of sane default where we get to all collaborate on the hard problem in general that is, which version of my dependencies do I use? Uh, so yeah, it gives us a, a fully featured solver that lets us answer that question. And there is no other tool out there that, that has that. Yeah, I was going to ask that same question, basically, because a lot of people, especially if you're using packages that aren't constantly maintained, mm-hmm. some people will put hard versions rather than loose for some ver and things like that. And then when you get up to your level and it can't solve, you know, whether there was an easy way to just be like, uh, I know that they want 1.2, but I'm perfectly okay with 1.2.3, you know? Yep. Yes, there's uh, uh, there's an override behavior. It exists today. It works today. But uh, yeah, so there's that piece of it. I think the rest of it is to say, though, that we've aggressively invested effort in trying to make this as simple an experience as possible. 
which is to say we're trying to pare out as much of the command set as we can. We're trying to keep the declarations that you have to make as as minimal as possible. Um, and actually, a really a really key design decision, and this is something it sets. Uh, and I would say this is actually the most sort of uniquely Go thing about this entire system because you know, GPS has. I originally adapted it from the Pub Solver for for Dart, but it's structurally similar to the Solver in Cargo, and and just there's a lot of commonalities between these systems. But the thing that is most unique about Go, uh, and and Def in particular, is that in these other systems, their manifest files declare both the sort of constraints concept and the requires concept. That is, uh, you have to list something in the manifest in order for it to show up, and it also uh, decides which versions of it can show up. In depth, it's different. The thing that determines whether or not something shows up is the import graph. We statically analyze the code, because this is Go, and we can do this. Uh, we statically analyze the code, we see which imports are there, and that's what determines whether or not something shows up. You can then, putting um, a constraint in the manifest does, is it just pairs down the set of versions that can be used. But the crucial thing here is it means that you can, you know, continue on coding in the way that you always have. You just, <laughs> you write your code, you make your import statements, and then it works it out. You don't have to go fiddling with a separate file. hate fiddling. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to beat a dead horse because it's what I do. Yeah. This this tool sounds pretty awesome. And, and I have to admit that the GopherCon website code, which is on GitHub, is now vendored with DEP. And I first time I used it, it worked beautifully. I didn't have any issues. You know, it just it worked. Cool. So kudos for that. That's kind of awesome considering how new it is. But it occurs to me that unless people tag and make real releases, we're not going to be any better off even with an official dev tool or dep tool. We're still out in the wild, wild west. Yeah. Uh I think things are incrementally better even with it there's the possibility of doing well i think we're incrementally better but for the most part yes you're right like if people are not actually making releases then there's there's not a lot of magic that we can do which is part of the reason that this goes way back like i didn't think it was a great idea to just go and fire out another tool i thought it was really really important that we try to get everybody together on this and build community momentum and consensus because there's a lot of opt-in by a lot of different people that has to happen in order for the ecosystem to really work well. Uh, and yeah, tag and releases is step one. Well, it reminds me of Dave Cheney's um, proposal, was it a year or two ago, where he suggested that go adopt officially a, a versioning standard. Right. And, and the, the response from the community was overwhelmingly why. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, as usual, Dave was forward thinking and... You know, it's kind of disappointing that we're so far behind the curve on this. I know a lot of even the, the younger languages, NIM and, and Rust, which is younger than Go, they all have this concept built in, almost uh, intrinsically built in, and yet Go really relies only on Git or its, its underlying version control system for yep. any concept of versioning. That's, I'm disappointed by that. Yeah, my, my take on, on that long, painful thread uh, was that we had a chicken or egg problem. There was, no reason, there was no reason for people to start using tagging until there was a tool that actually really worked effectively with Sember. And then there's no reason to write a tool unless sort of people have already made the releases. So we, we were in this 
nasty situation where it was sort of hard to break out, which again was why it's like, well, of these problems, the only one that one person or a small group of people can really solve is to make a tool that works well and robustly uh, with Semver. And that then, you know, knocks one side of the equation out and the rest of it is pushing for adoption. So if we were to give somebody a platform at GopherCon, say a stage in front of 1500 people live stream yeah. to the world, you, know. you think we could make some change? I think we could make some change. Interesting. Not that we have a platform to give, but I'm just not you know, I, <laughs> hypothetically. Just, that sounds totally hypothetical and not at all resembling the, the universe that we live in. Yeah. <laughs> so, Sam, I wanted to ask you to talk about the vendor directory. I'm looking through Ed Muller's blog post, I Can Has Downtime. Yep. And he describes here how you do DEP Ensure, and that basically creates a vendor directory, which is mostly what well, I think what most people do these days. And that makes sense if we're not going to have a central repository to where to store the, the different libraries and versions. So tell us how it's going to work and what it's going to look like and what's going to be different from what people are doing today. I think that the the actual structure of files on disk is is not going to change. Um, I and mean, we're still going to use the vendor directory. Uh, those those semantics are not going to change anytime soon. The thing that's worth noting about it is that, uh, and, and this is in at least one of the issues, I, I have written, so I want to like write a script that can go and count the number of words that I have put into comments in, in a repo on GitHub or something, because I don't know how much I've written in the last month, but uh, <laughs> my, my head is spinning all the time now. Uh, it, a lot of discussions, which is great. So in one of these issues that is giving me brain fog, um, at the top of it, we note that you should think of the vendor directory as an implementation detail, not as the actual target uh, that we're going for. And you know this, this gets sort of way off in the future, so I don't want to dwell too much on it, but we do think it's possible to, uh, to have an alternative implementation that does not require us to place things into vendor and constantly sort of swapping these files around on disk. Uh, we think that solution could be a lot more elegant. Essentially, the only downside of it would be the uh, fact that it's it's not in your repository anymore, meaning that you are subject to left pad style failures, uh, where if you know the upstream goes away, uh, you can't necessarily recreate, which is a real concern. Is that a new verb now? We're just going to call it left padding. Left padding. I mean, <laughs> I've I've given presentations where I certainly use it as a verb, so I I, I think it counts. <laughs> Does that answer your question, Carlicia? Yeah, and also the direct the vendor directory is it going to be flattened? Yes, yes, and always and aggressively. And vendor is volatile, and if you put stuff in there that the tool didn't put in there, it will blow it away and not apologize. See, that's always good too because people like to patch things. No, no, uh, right in the <laughs> yeah. Um, the, there's no apologies for that. Like the the only thing with treating vendor as volatile that I have concerns about is some things related to code generation. And I've seen a couple of issues raised over the last year with this in Glide 1, and, and I can't remember it offhand. You can check through. I, I have a list that, that might have the issue in it, but I'm a little bit worried that it might be we might get into a nasty situation where if you like have to do code gen inside of your vendor directory and the way that you're depending on the thing that you're depending on requires code gen to have happened locally inside of its own uh, directory structure, then we get into a nasty situation. But 
that's the only thing that that strikes me basically as something where we need to just say if if your project requires code gen, design it in a way where it can be generated in an alternate location. Don't require it to be generated inside of your country. Because it's not. I mean, frankly, it's it's so much harder if we try to treat vendor as non-volatile. So much harder. And um, I don't want to jump ahead too much, and I don't even know if you can answer this question, but sure. when are we going to have this tool? <laughs> 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 right. So, um, no, this, this, is, this is the most important question, right? Uh, so the committee's been talking with a bunch of people. Um, we've been talking with Russ as well. And the goal is, and, and I have this roadmap that I've been working on, which I'm, I was hoping to publish by today. I'm still sort of tweaking some things around in it uh, and checking by other folks on the committee, but should be, should be up presently you know, in the next week or so. I would really like to see... Uh, we need to stabilize the, the manifest and mock files. Uh, we need to stabilize the command set itself. And then we need to define and implement the basic security model for this. Other stuff is important, but we can sort of continue to work on it post-merge into, into the tool chain. That is going to be a hard process. I, again, I, I like despite the fact that this is at GitHub Golang depth, that does not mean that this is blessed or that it is foreordained that this will make another tool chain. We have a long slog and we need a lot of help from people to really get it there. But we do have this roadmap and ideally in the greatest of worlds, yeah, the Go tool chain that you get with 110 will include the modified version of DEP and this this will become the new standard. Yeah, I think anything on GitHub is production worthy, so Should, <laughs> you, you would, shouldn't have put it there. You would have the rest of the world, so it's it's fair. There, there is a reason we waited a while to release this. Like we wanted it to be, uh, you know, at least runnable, despite the big, big letter warning that says don't commit the the manifest and lock files <laughs> that are generated by this. Yeah, um, people have already done it, including people on the committee. So it's not like I can, you know, um, <laughs> it's not like I can complain that much. And, and did you give us a date for one ten? Uh, that's so that'd be like the end of this year, I believe. Cool. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to remember their, their releases. One's in August, and the other one is oh, I can't remember. It it'll be this time next year. Whatever. So I was I was muted. It's February 2018 because we have six month release cycles. There you go. And talking about help, um, talk to us about how is the process of people getting involved um, going to be like? For example. Are you going to want to have issues open before people jump in and start doing things? Because how are people even going to know what right. is there to do? Do you have a process? Do you have people to lead this process? Do you need people like all the way from, from that point on? Yes. The, the answer is, is yes to all of the possible things that I could need. I need all of them. That would be great. <laughs> um, uh, you know, we, we, need, we need people to help with uh, uh, kicking the tires. We need people to help with writing docs. We need people to help with figuring out some of the design issues that we have. Uh, we need people to help with the project management itself and sort of managing the queue. Uh, we need help on all these fronts. The roadmap that I'm trying to get out there is intended to provide a bunch of just a sort of generalized picture so that people can read it and say, all right, I have a sense of where this is going and I have a sense of, of where I might direct my effort. Uh, from there, um, you know, we've got, we've got like a help wanted and a, a good first PR label uh, for our issues on GitHub, uh, so you can find things that way. But we're trying very hard to, yes, make make a clear sort of entry doorway for people coming to this for the first time and finding their way to to somewhere effective. If you can't figure out anything though, uh, then you know, come into the vendor channel on on 
go for Slack and ping me <laughs> and, and, and we'll figure something out. And that's probably the best way to get in contact for people who want to start helping. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, right now it's, it's, uh, the three ways in are one, just install it, run dependent on a project and, you know, do some things, run into some stuff, have some questions, post an issue. I mean, it is, it's, it's runnable now enough that like you can really try it. You can kick the tires and just post an issue. If you have a problem, you will not get yelled at. I promise. <laughs> uh, way two is yes. Come to the vendor channel, ask some questions. And then way three will be right. Have a look at the roadmap and um, follow your way down from the roadmap into epics and, and individual issues. Cool. So what do you see? What do you envision for the future of GoDep? Do you think that, We'll be in a place as a community with Semver and things like that and kind of agreement on the depth tool where if it comes as part of 110, community adoption would be would be mostly there before it hits the Go release. Or do you envision kind of like the Go release being the thing that helps trigger the community to adopt it? What's the future you see for Go depth or for the depth tool rather? I keep wanting to say Go depth, but... I. Because likely the tool would say go depth, right? Uh, well, dep. <laughs> eventually, actually, uh, the, the word dep is going to go away. It's going to become like, you know, now you do dep init, dep insure. Um, it will probably become go init, go insure. Okay. Uh, that's that's the current plan anyway. Um, yeah, we, we went back and forth over naming within the committee a lot. We tried out some alternates, but ultimately did not go with them because reasons. Uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I think it's going to be. A little of both. Um, I mean, we're we're trying very hard to get this out there and to give people plenty of lead time to be able to test it out. So, a first major milestone for us really is like the the stabilizing of the manifest and lock files. Once we do that, people can start kind of using it for real. And the guarantee that we want to make is once these are stabilized, manifest and lock files are not going to change even after integration into the Go tool chain itself. So, you should be sort of forwards compatible or this, this is the problem with working on package management tools. I literally don't know which direction time flows anymore. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm thinking about like going back in time with code history, but forward in time with releases of the tool. And it's, it's a very weird place to be in. So you should be able to, to commit your manifest and lock files once we get to the stabilization point. And going back to even those old versions will work fine with uh, even future versions of the Go tool chain that include uh, depth. So, yes, I, I think the spot we'll be in is uh, hopefully a lot of people will have had a chance to try it. That will have existed out in the wild as a standalone thing. It will also have existed for hopefully most of a release cycle as part of the tool chain itself. Um, uh, so people have had a chance to, to try it in both places. Uh, and then we'll, uh, and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll turn it loose. I know there's some hesitation around, like, hiding it behind a feature flag or something like that because that ended up getting just complicated with vendor but uh yeah we'll have to see i mean there's there's a lot of considerations here obviously this this ends up touching <laughs> this ends up touching a lot of things so the best we can do you know for now i think is we just we just keep pushing forward hitting all the bugs that we can um hoping that our design is basically sane and uh yeah you know good good old elbow grease and open source a lot of work yeah I think it goes that way with uh, most of these projects and, and everybody kind of has their own um, 
their own view for how these things work. We all come from different places and backgrounds and there's so many different ways people are doing dependency management in the wild now. So I think that there's mostly agreement between all the people who have been working on tools says a lot. And I think that it's easy to move forward from there. Yeah, that was that was a lot of the work of 2016 for sure. Is it was it was getting people on board, and I I cannot tell you how pleased I am with everyone who came together. I mean, it's been it was it was a, a Herculean and and long time effort, but I'm super pleased with all the people that have come together, users and developers of tools alike, to uh, uh, to get us to where we are today. That's awesome. You got to admit the Go community is is pretty awesome. I cannot argue with that. Well, we would we would laugh at you if you did. <laughs> you would be right. <laughs> All right. So with that, I think it is time for our second sponsor break. Our second sponsor for today is Compose. Production ready cloud hosted databases. That's what Compose is all about. Compose.com. Check them out. Pick your flavor. Mongo, Elasticsearch, RethinkDB, Redis, Postgres, etcd, RabbitMQ, SiloDB, or MySQL. I talked to Greg Koberger, founder of Readme, about why they chose Compose. Take a listen. So we actually weren't using Compose at first. We uh, had our own Mongo database set up uh, on AWS. We were just going through a checklist of things that would just kill our company. You know, it's not to be overly dramatic, but there's a few things early on that can just destroy a company and there's no coming back from. And pretty much every single one of them was around data loss or whether it be stolen or just deleted. I don't do DevOps. Uh, I'm a programmer and I can, you know, navigate my way around the command line, but I did not believe that I had the skills to make sure that I wouldn't just delete the database by mistake or that my backups wouldn't at some point, you know, just stop working. You know, every single scenario that I saw, like, you know, waking up and and seeing that something bad had just happened, they all involved the data. If we pushed a bad, you know, push bad code and it broke something, that can be fixed. But kind of data, either theft or loss was the two things that I just uh, was petrified of. It took, you know, 30 seconds to get started with Compose. Uh, We went to the site, signed up, moved over within minutes. It was fast. The interface was great. We could browse stuff online. But kind of the biggest reason why we started using was just scared that we were going to lose everything. All right. If you're ready to give Compose a try, head to compose.com slash changelog to learn more. And now back to the show. All right. We are back talking to Sam Boyer. So we were going through all the dependency tool stuff. Um, Does everybody want to kind of talk about projects and news, things we've seen and come across this past week? I know you mentioned Upspin. I think we've got a few minutes left of the show. So Upspin's a big one for sure. Um, And if you haven't seen it yet, it's kind of a, it's a big project, but it's written in Go and it was written by Rob Pike and Andrew Durand, among others. Um, A lot of fancy distributed storage mechanisms to it. But at the end of the day, the idea is that your content will be addressable with with sort of a key that is generally your email address. And uh, it looks like a very interesting project. I did try to install it, but I got got befuddled on something and gave up. So I walked away. Like almost every other thing in our list today, I've, I've played with almost all of these. It's kind of funny. Upspin is responsible for finding an obscure bug in GPS. Hey, that's cool. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Not actually that obscure, but um, if you import something from uh, a test, like if you, you know if you import from a test in package A, package B, and then package B imports package A, that's perfectly legal. It's not an import cycle uh, because um, 
you're not actually importing from package B the stuff in the testing part of package A. But the model that I currently use to uh, sort a bunch of the stuff out doesn't split up the notion of which imports are from which source there. So uh, it was erroneously throwing away about two-thirds of, of upspin uh, because of what it perceived to be an import cycle that wasn't actually there. If these things happen. you got to break some eggs to make an omelet. It's true. I mean, yeah. <laughs> we'll fix it eventually, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I guess anybody who may not have listened, one eight came out last week. Yep. Live on our show, it came out. Uh, right. So, Brian was making a joke that because basically the blog post and tweet dropped while we were recording our show. He's like, oh, they were just waiting for us to record. <laughs> so, we could announce it. So, yeah, there were a couple of bugs found um, they've already been working on, one of which was really interesting, which was basically starting to run across where the SSA optimizations kind of have dependencies on each other and ordering issues now. Um, There was basically inside a loop, if all you did was use the atomic package, it would basically optimize away that. But it looks like that's already fixed, which is awesome. It's just interesting because I think as we come across some of these things, we're going to run into to more issues, but SSA is going to be awesome. I love seeing all of the uh, the graphs that people are posting on Twitter of their go 1.8 garbage collection times oh, compared yeah. to 1.7. <laughs> you know, the, the way they used to make the old joke when when the new Mac OS came out, yeah, it feels faster already. And and Go is actually making that true. I love that. It makes me happy. Yeah, that's one of the things I love about Go so much is if you just keep writing idiomatic Go. They make it faster for you. You don't you don't have to think about it too much. I saw a post too, and I actually linked it in our uh, show docs where Josh Bleacher Snyder was talking about um, some optimizations in one nine that they're wanting to make to interfaces, basically forcing allocations because internally they they represent a pointer to a value. So there's basically going to be some optimizations in the way that works, and I guess that it comes across from the way most of the logging packages work was kind of what triggered that whole thing but we'll link to that in the show notes so how, how about you sam do you have any like cool things that are on your radar right now you know the truth is i am so like just completely narrowly focused on the dependency management problem that other people say like hey this thing is happening i'm like oh there's a world outside of what i'm doing because i just forget about it <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah uh give me a second i'll come up with something uh, you're not forced, but that's one of the cool things that we just, uh, as part of the show, we like to just kind of discuss things we've run across and things we're playing with. Like um, Brian brought a, uh, was it a couple episodes ago? You you had mentioned a, a thing called Was, which is kind of like a cool, like TUI, like text user interface way of messing with like curl for anybody who doesn't want to remember all the flags. And then like I ran across one this week called HTTP Lab, which is kind of similar. Is HTTP Lab the one that's um, it's like a, a server side? It's it's the opposite. So it'll collect the request and then you can manipulate the response and send it back. Yes. Yeah, I saw that one. That looks really cool. Oh, cool. Yeah. And there goes Duncan. <laughs> I had my first actual need for something like that with a client project recently. I ended up using something in that general field of you know intercepting HTTP requests and messing with them. I ended up using. Um, Oh, uh, what is it? MITM dump and MITM proxy for it. Oh, yeah. Although I don't think that actually lets you mess with things, but yeah. 
Yeah, there's a few things like that. And it depends on kind of which side of it you need to be on. Mm. Uh, you know, in the InfoSec world, a lot of people use like Burp Suite and things like that for mm. when they need to like man in the middle request and kind of stop them and modify them on their way. Well, I guess this is the opposite where you're trying to catch the response and modify it and send it back. Yep. How about you, Carlicia? I just wanted to mention that SourceGraph put out a blog post talking about how to implement core intelligence. And I didn't read the whole thing. I just skimmed, but it looks pretty cool. And I'm a big fan of SourceGraph. So I think this uh, blog post mostly gives you an insight of how they do what they do. And um, if you're not using SourceGraph, you definitely should, because it's amazing. really makes uh, your workflow a lot better and faster. I sound like a salesperson. (laughs) (laughs) I I think Carlise is collecting checks. (laughs) Maybe I am. (laughs) No, I'm not. I'm not just the spokesperson. I'm a member. (laughs) (laughs) No, I, I love their browser extension. Especially like when you're trying to find like example uses of uh, of a library, it's, I think it's it's just super handy. Yes, exactly. I use I use it for that a lot. So this week was really interesting for kind of distributed tools too, because Brian, you mentioned Upspin, but there were two other ones that were really cool that I saw too, which was uh, Rook, which has actually been around for a little while, um, which is like a distributed storage that's written in Go. And then there was a new one that I hadn't seen before, which is called Meshbird, which I haven't played with, but it looked really cool from what they were demoing on GitHub for um, kind of like doing distributed networking with Go. I did. I played with it. I cannot tell a lie. <laughs> I did. And it, and it works as expected. Um, what was the, um, oh, there was a tool 10 years ago. What was that tool? Oh, you thought... Yeah, you, um, oh, shoot. It completely escapes me. Like, but it was the, the easiest way to get a, a VPN up. Yeah, it's like um, your own. Mesh, mesh or what was that? Uh, Mosh? They, they got bought by um, Citrix or one of those people and it just kind of disappeared. But anyway, I digress. This, this works the same. You, know, you just start up a daemon on both instances with a little bit of information and now you've got a VPN. You're not talking about Mosh, right? The mobile no. shell? Where no, it, no, no, okay. no. There was a there was an app that you would run on all of the servers in your in your VPN chain, and they would open up a secure tunnel in between all of them, and it was all client side, all user space, and they had Windows, Mac, and Linux clients. So, you know, while I was at work, I had a VPN to my house, and it didn't matter what was in between. Or who was trying to prevent you from doing that? It all just worked. Nice. And I just can't—I can't remember what it was, and it disappeared when they got bought. I'm still figuring out the logo for Meshbird, though. Oh, they got bought by Log Me In. That's who bought them. That might be the easiest way to figure it out. Come on, Slack, don't let us down. <laughs> Hamachi, thank you, Paolo Piera. Good job. It was Hamachi. We, we don't even have to do our own fact-checking anymore. I know, this is awesome. It's like having our own backup team. Wait, wait, I'm hearing, I'm hearing from the control room, it was Hamachi VPN. <laughs> like you got a little earpiece in and you're being collected <laughs> live on the news. <laughs> yeah, I loved Hamachi. I, I abused the crap out of that thing. Those were the good old days. When I was a kid. 
Oh, that was the other proposal that I saw too um, that I wanted to mention. So fuzzing has become like bigger and bigger lately. And there was actually a cool um, fuzzing tool for fuzzing syscalls, which was interesting. But the the thing that I was excited about is that um, I think it was Brad Fitzpatrick who started a proposal for adding fuzzing as a first-class citizen for kind of uh, tests and benchmarks, which is really Mm. cool. That's awesome. There's already kind of a second class fuzzing in the testing, one of the sub packages of testing, but it's not full fuzzing. It's just kind of half fuzzing. The quick package? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was reading through that issue earlier, and there are some, um, I guess, issues with trying to to pick up the work that, that Dimitri's done and fit it into the, the testing quick package. But yeah, it'd be, it'd, it'd be awesome to see fuzzing within the tool chain, I think. I, I, I always just... I love thinking about fuzzing because not only is the word fuzz fun, uh, but <laughs> the, the thing that I first think of when I think of fuzz is American Fuzzy Lop, which is the single best named piece of software that has ever happened. So, yeah. It's funny, too, because some of the fuzzing, the names of the tools are hilarious, too. There, there's a, yeah. there's so many fuzzing tools out there. And fuzzing is interesting, too, because there's multiple ways of doing it, too. Yeah. You know, you have ones that just kind of randomly send just junk data hoping for crashes then you have others that use kind of more machine learning tactics and you try to show it some good requests and it tries to mutate those until it figures out what a bad request looks like and mm. yeah as a class of software i love it because it's the the fact that fuzzers are so useful is just such good evidence of the, the fact that humans are terrible at writing software uh, Why programmers which... can't be trusted Yes, yes, which is one of like the most foundational elements of my of my programming worldview is that we as humans are bad at it. So I'd be I would I would love to see fuzzing moved into the tool chain. And unfortunately, there's not really much of another option, right? Because if we had if we needed to write software to write software, then that software is just going to be bad. That's right. <laughs> yeah. No, it's till the machines take over, we're screwed. <laughs> And after the machines take over, it won't matter. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I mean, it's not like we can, can you imagine? We, we barely understand the software we write ourselves today. Uh, it's, it's just going to continue getting worse. <laughs> yeah, I can't even keep up anymore with everything that's going on and changing in the software world. And I'm, I'm glad people are starting to write tools to, to look for our dumb mistakes in the form of static analysis and fuzzing and and all that good stuff. When you look at the Go tooling, we are so far ahead of nearly every other language in terms of the ecosystem that we provide developers. You know, we've got static checking, we've got error checking, you know, the the, the language itself feeds the ability for developers to write cool tools to help us write better software, more bug-free software and and Go has done such a great job of integrating those tools right into the Go command. You know, it's just, we really are light years above most. I love that. Yeah, and I mean, the fact that a lot of the, the um, static analysis tools are built right into the standard library, making it really easy to build your own tooling to look for common mistakes. A lot of languages don't have that kind of the, the compiler logic is kind of completely separated out and not really exposed to the, to the end user. It's pretty awesome. It provides interesting opportunities for even for the dependency management stuff. There's there's some discussion, uh, maybe we'll explore it at some point, of not just doing version constraint checks, 
uh, in terms of deciding whether a given version is is acceptable. But maybe we do a little bit of type checking. Yeah. Maybe we do some other things. Just go in and do an analysis of the source code and see that that none of the signatures have changed. This is probably okay. Yep. Yeah, these things are feasible um, to at least explore. Yeah. I need one to yell at me for Semver too. Like, hey, this this code is clearly different, but you're trying to use the same version. Yep. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna forget the name. Somebody named Bradley in Australia wrote that tool. Falzon. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, he wrote that yep. tool. He has one, and there's another one too. But he wrote he wrote that like six months ago at least. See, this is how out of touch I am. <laughs> this is how awesome my memory is. There you go. <laughs> All right. So uh, you guys want to do Free Software Friday? Absolutely. It wouldn't be a show without it. Exactly. So Sam, uh, to fill you in, um, basically every episode we do a thing called Free Software Friday. Lots of uh, open source projects don't really get a lot of uh, love and attention unless it's people complaining or opening issues. So we like to just take a moment uh, kind of each episode and shout out to an open source project that kind of uh, makes our day. It does not have to be Go. It doesn't have to be a project. It can be a person, but just kind of uh, showing love to, to the community for stuff that they do. Um, if you have something cool, if you don't, that's okay too. We'll start with Brian and give you time to think. <laughs> All right. So mine this week is an interesting one. Uh, if you've used Google Hangouts before, you you know what this software does. It's called Jitsi, J-I-T-S-I, Meet, Jitsi Meet. And it's basically a self-hosted version of Google Hangouts that runs over WebRTC. And it uses um, all kinds of crazy stuff in the background, XMPP servers and video bridges and, and what have you. So I installed it uh, earlier this week just because and was just blown away by how high quality it was. I did a video conference with Bill Kennedy while he was in India, and he was like he was in the next room. There was no latency, no delay, high, high speed audio and video. It was really good. So if you're looking for a way to do self-hosted video conferences, webinars, meetings, that sort of stuff, uh, Jitsi Meet is pretty slick, and it's all open source. You know what I find funny about that project? Going back history, if people don't know Brian and I's history, Years ago, when we first met, Brian was my boss, and he tried to fire me for installing Node on his computer. <laughs> and that is clearly written in Node. So Jitsi Meet is not written in Node. Some of it's written in Erlang, and some of it's written in Python, and there are parts that have JavaScript pieces in it. And I did not try to fire you. I just threatened to fire you if you ever installed <laughs> Node on my machine again. Uh. How about you, Carlicia? Yeah, I found a really neat tool. It, it is written in Go. It's called GCLI. It's a CLI generator. It's so neat. It's unbelievable. Basically, you run a command line, command, and one of the, the input arguments that you pass is the name of the framework you, you want to use as the CLI framework. And it outputs a whole directory structure, and it's really well organized. And I love it that it gives you the test files already populated, and it even gives you a readme file. And now that I'm looking at it here, it gives you a version.go file too. So you pass in the name of the CLI 
framework you want to use. And you also pass in things like the commands you want to use. And that's how it lays out one file for each of the commands and the corresponding test file. It's really neat. So it just sort of scaffolds it out for you? Yeah. I love code generators. Yeah, and then the cool thing about it is that it lets you pick your CLI framework. Like it has um, Mitchell Hashimoto's CLI tool. I thought I saw on there that it did Cobra. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, Cobra, get out. It does um, Code Gangster, Mitchell, CLI, and it's called Go Commands, but I think it's for the standard library. Hmm. Oh, cool. They skip Cobra. They're doing it wrong. There's no Cobra listed. I'm quite sure they take pull requests. <laughs> I'm quite sure they do. That's how open source works. <laughs> Literally open source. Uh, how about you, Sam? Do you have anybody you want to give a shout out to? You know, the the thing actually that I feel the most need to do is not a particular project, but I will give a shout out to people who write docs. Ooh. The <laughs> unsung heroes. Uh, yeah, seriously. And, and quite unsung. I mean, projects are, it's so easy to, to go in and, work on something for a long time. And it's the cursed knowledge problem, right? Like you forget how much you know about the thing that you have written. It's really, really hard to put yourself in the shoes of other people who are you know, going to come and try to work with something. And it's great that you know, software is out there, but if we can't figure out how to use it, it doesn't matter. Um, so yeah, those folks who come in, they spend the time uh, and they figure out how to translate for others. It is the tissue that makes up the open source world that people forget about all the time. So Shout out to anyone, author or, you know, contributor who's, who's writing docs. That made me remember that Katrina Owen tweeted just recently, a couple of weeks, within a couple of weeks. She said something like, I don't understand why people say for people who are new to open source to start with documentation. She just said, because that's the hardest part of open source mm-hmm. or, or of development. Mm-hmm. Well, and once you, especially like, I admit this is kind of a different angle, but once you learn enough about it, you forget how to write the docs for people who didn't know. Like there's this special moment when you first come to a project where you are still, your mind is still a blank slate when it comes to the way that the thing works. And uh, writing down your experiences when it comes to learning a piece of software, yeah, you can never get that moment back. And it's it's a chance to help out somebody else who's, who's coming in. Yeah, good points. So uh, mine is a project actually called Helm. Um, which is a part of uh, Kubernetes, which is basically like a tool for, they have a thing called a chart. And it's basically kind of like a guided install for like well-known applications. So people aren't kind of like recreating Redis or MySQL or or things like that. There's kind of like these uh, shared ways of installing and running these projects on a Kubernetes cluster. And it's uh, actually one of the first projects I think that have come out and uh, been adopted out of the incubator into um, Kubernetes proper. And I saw somewhere, I think it's kubeapps.com. I think somebody just had recently released. Yes, kubeapps. Yeah, um, where you should be able to go and search for these Helm charts for common projects that you might want to install. So they've been working on that for a long time. Now, Helm Helm is mostly driven by the folks at OpenDAIS. Awesome contributions from them to the Go community and Kubernetes both, which is cool. When Helm was originally created by Matt Butcher, who is the original creator of Glide as well. It, it's just a perfect circle. It really is. It's a circle of life. <laughs> he told me once that he's, he's like, I, I 
somehow keep on writing package management tools. I'm not sure how this <laughs> happened myself. It's just, it's just a different type of packaging. Yep. Did you guys um, want me to keep singing to end out the show? No, please don't. Okay, just let me know. I was enjoying it. I don't know. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Sam. You can come back. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> Does that mean I'm not invited back? Nope. Alicia has taken your spot next week. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> You're fired. How dare you install NPM on my laptop? Well, technically, you just did yourself, so. I've had NPM for years now. I just don't admit it. I'm the one who, like, what was it, three years ago that, that famously tweeted, Docker is like a condom for Node. Uh, and, and it's the truth. Uh, so with that, uh, <laughs> No comments. <laughs> right. Awkward. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so with that, uh, thank you, everybody, for being on the show. Thank you so much for coming on, Sam. Uh, it was great talking with you. Thank you for the chance. Uh, and especially getting some more detail. Yeah, this has been great. Keep up the hard work. Thanks for doing it. Yeah, and everybody, uh, please reach out and help and yes. run depth and file issues. Yes, we will have this roadmap up so soon. And and all of your contributions will be wonderful and valued. And uh, yeah, please do. <laughs> File issues for things that are broken, but extra credit if you submit a PR for it. Exactly. Uh, so huge thank you to all of our, our listeners, uh, both the live listeners and the people who will be listening to the show once it's produced. Definitely a huge shout out to our sponsors for today's episode, TopTal and Compose. Without them, we wouldn't be able to continue doing this. Uh, share the show with friends and fellow Go programmers. Uh, we are gotime.fm online. Uh, you can find us at gotime.fm on Twitter. And if you want to be on the show, you have suggestions for guests or questions of guests that we already have scheduled, head over to github.com slash gotimefm slash ping. And with that, goodbye, everybody. We'll see you next week. Bye, and thank you, Sam. Thanks, everybody. This was, this was great. All right, that wraps up this episode of GoTime. Special thanks to our sponsors, TopTal and Compose. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. This episode was edited by Jonathan Youngblood, and the theme music for GoTime is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening.